0: And welcome to One More Thing, featuring authors, artists, entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Donna Lynn, inviting you to tune in on Sundays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time, right here on BBS Radio for in-depth talk and terrific guests. Coming up, award-winning celebrity biographer Michael Michaud joins me today from Los Angeles. Michael has written numerous books and articles on Hollywood and the arts, including Salminio, Diane McVain, Alan Seuss, and the subject of our interview today, the very eclectic May West. Hi Michael, thanks for being here.
1: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing good. How about you? Uh
1: I'm good. I've got a glass of water here to keep me uh keep me rolling. So nice to No talk to you no again.
0: uh no wine, Michael, today?
1: No, too early.
0: <laughs> well you know it's it's not often that you get to have an in-depth discussion about the very colorful Mae West. So I thank you for that. Um, But, you know, there are fan clubs and books are being written. Why do you think people are still curious about her, Michael?
1: I think she was someone who was very much ahead of her time. Uh, She brought a new type of characterization for a female, for a leading lady in in motion pictures, something that no one had ever seen. I think that she was uh, challenged all of the norms at the time, and you have to keep that. Of course, you have to keep that in the context of time. But in the early 1930s, we were living in a very Puritan world here in in America, and the motion picture business was uh, uh, had a watchdog called the uh, Hayes Con- Hayes Commission, which was which was essentially censor- censoring. Uh, motion pictures, and she sort of wiggled through that in her own way, and um, probably a couple of her films contributed to the formation of that committee. Um, people were shocked. Some people were shocked by what she did. The studio was thrilled because she saved them from bankruptcy in her first starring film. But nevertheless, the censors uh, were after her, and it was a bit of a game she uh she wrote all of her own screenplays which was also very unusual for women at that time and she was able to sidestep the censors by inserting material that was especially um questionable and she knew that they they felt the need to uh cut material out of her screenplays so she gave them that material that she knew they would cut <laughs> Essentially, leaving in place the screenplay that she wanted from the beginning—a uh, very clever way of of playing with them.
0: Yeah, it is very clever. And when you watch her, she's very she's a lot of fun to watch. She liked playing with them, didn't she? She liked uh, challenging the censors.
1: She did. She had a great sense of humor in real life. Uh, she loved the character that she created, which was really every film role that she played was sort of a variation of Diamond Lil, which was a character she created in the late 1920s uh, for a Broadway play that she wrote titled Diamond Lil. And that sort of gave her this character that she uh, adopted. And she played this same type of strong-willed woman throughout the rest of her career. She started off in, in vaudeville <clears throat> Excuse me, vaudeville and, and burlesque, and she worked with female impersonators. Julian Elton, was a very famous one at the time, she was very influenced by him. Uh, she was intrigued uh, at the way uh, that female impersonators um, exaggerated
0: the mannerisms
1: of a woman in order to impersonate them. They turned it into a cartoon rather than a true impersonation of a woman. And she thought that that was very funny and very interesting. And if you watch her closely uh, in films, she's impersonating a man who's impersonating a woman. (laughs) And her characterization is very exaggerated, including her figure and her mannerisms and uh, the, the way she spoke. Uh, the way she grinded her hips, and it was all very, very exaggerated. And this is something that she saw uh, in her early days of working uh, in burlesque in in, uh, vaudeville.
0: uh, You've written two very um, intriguing books on Mae West, Broadcast, Muse and Between the Covers. What was your initial interest in researching and writing about Mae?
1: Well, I've been a fan uh, since I was a kid. Uh, She was a fascinating person. Uh, to me. Uh, I thought that um, I remember uh when she made a comeback in nineteen sixty nine in in uh Myra Breckenridge, she was on the cover, a fold out cover of Life magazine with photographs by Roddy McDowell in a long interview and I was fascinated she was uh, I think it said May West Going Strong at seventy six. I was fascinated <clears throat> I hadn't heard about her yeah, in in a very long time. So I started watching. I was in, back in those days. They had the Late Late Show, and they had a TV guide that was almost as thick as a Reader's Digest. And I could, I would go through the re, the TV guide and uh, uh, scout through the entire week and circle all of the May West movies that would be playing on the Late Show. And I had a little tiny black and white portable television in my bedroom, and I would get up at all hours of the night. To tune in to watch Mae West, um, on The Late Show in this, you know, snow covered. <laughs> it looked like I was watching it through a snowstorm, but it, it was, it was so fascinating to me. She was so interesting, something entirely different. And for someone who was, uh, christened a sex symbol, um, I, I thought she really challenged that. She turned that. Uh, that uh, perception of what a sex symbol is on its ears. So um, I've been interested, you know, for many years. During her life, she blocked uh, anyone from writing a book about her. She wrote her own autobiography. Goodness had nothing to do with it in the late 1950s, which was very successful. But it wasn't until she passed away, 1980, that books began to get published about her. There's a few good ones. Um, and they really explore her, um, the roots of her work, and 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 what influenced her and what she was trying to do. But I wanted to do something a little bit different. I did not write a, a biography of her. Uh, May West Between the Covers is something mostly an editorial effort on my part, and I was able to go through thousands of movie magazines and uh, uh, pull out the most interesting uh, interviews or editorial features about her from uh, the early 1930s right up until 1978 shortly before she died and i edited those and put those in this book with many unseen photographs and it's a it's a different way of looking at her because most of them of these interviews going way back are in her own place. Mm-hmm. And and these have been lost. Essentially, you know, old movie magazines. Are, if you want to go dig through a library, you might find them. But for the most part, these are things that have disappeared. And in addition to her speaking in her own voice, the reporters who would go to her apartment in Hollywood or at the studio described in great detail what the apartment was like, what they were served for snacks, what she how she was dressed how she smelled, and these are things that um, are, are completely lost today. So it was a way of, you know, really taking a look back um, at what she was a 100 years ago. The second book, Broadcast News, is the first time that there's been a, a, a critical look at her work in radio and television. Um she didn't do a lot of work in television or radio. she in fact was banned from radio when she appeared on the on the uh, uh, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy show in 1937. But there's very rare photographs and scripts um, of radio shows and television shows that were produced, as well as a number of proposed radio and, and television shows in the 1950s that were never made and uh, include uh different scripts uh proposed scripts um for those shows so there they're different kinds of books uh the fans have been appreciative of them because there there was nothing like that exists, and I wanted to write something that I would be interested in, and as a fan that I couldn't find out there on the market, so that's you know that's well when what you I did. when
0: you read um Between the covers, it looks like she gave a lot of interviews. Is that correct?
1: Oh, yes, she did. Uh, She uh, loved talking to the press. Uh, She wouldn't necessarily have been forced to do that, but she appreciated uh, the importance of movie magazines, and at that time, they were an integral part of promoting a studio's uh, upcoming films as well as their stars. So the studios work hand-in-hand with movie magazines and were very careful that their stars were covered in a positive way or they would cut off that magazine or writer from any more access to their contract players. Um, She uh, was her real self in those interviews, um, very funny and quick on her feet. Um, And it seemed
0: like she, she liked to promote, didn't she?
1: Well, she was a self-promoter, you know, she started, she was six years old when she started and, uh, she worked through vaudeville and, and burlesque, which is pretty, was pretty tough. Uh, but she came, came out swinging. And then when she went to Broadway, she did several shows that were in her mind mediocre. And that's when she began to write her own material because there was nothing out there that she felt was suitable and she had the ability to To write, she had a wonderful sense of humor. The plays that she did in the 1920s on Broadway, one of them she was sent to prison for. But those plays, interestingly, were not really comedies. They were all melodramas. And when she came to Hollywood, part of the metamorphosis of the of the movie May West was uh, changing uh, her style uh, and making the character that she was playing humorous and she did that because if you're funny you can get away with more <laughs> you know with <laughs> your yes. mind your delivery yeah. because people aren't, aren't certain people aren't threatened by this predatory image which was not her her she she was funny and and uh, she did that purposefully to get away with more which which was very successful and but she did. started off as a dramatic actress, interestingly,
0: Michael how risque uh were her plays really
1: well, I've read them all uh some of them um, are are better than others uh the play sex, which they wouldn't even advertise uh, in the they, they wouldn't put the name of use the word in advertising in New York papers. they said may West in that certain play uh, was. Um, and not, not the best, um, uh, play. It's very dated now. But <laughs> it was very challenging. And she talked about, um, uh, unmarried couples and cheating and, and, uh, uh, homosexuals and the whole bunch of stuff that, you know, you just never saw on Things
0: Things we talk about openly today. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, absolutely, thanks yeah. to the people before who opened the doors. And she uh, was arrested. The play was raided after a year of sold-out performances, by the way. <laughs> the play was raided, and she was uh, went to court, and she was convicted of, of uh, corrupting the morals of New York <laughs> City, which she said was her greatest achievement in her life. <laughs> uh, and she went to prison for about 10 days for that. And I don't know what the intention was, uh, as far as the authorities go, but I think it probably, um, what they did to her backfired in terms of putting her on the front page of every newspaper in every country in the world. And it set her off um, on a journey.
0: Yeah, it was the, the, the best publicity place, she, uh, she could have gotten.
1: Oh, yeah. The next well, place you know, is, uh, I, I, I grew
0: up actually talking about May because my uncle was an actor. And he was an avid Uh fan who often repeated, come up and see me sometime. Uh, And I'm sure people still ask, did she really deliver that line, Michael?
1: Yes, she did. Mm -hmm.
0: did. And and what about her other lines? Uh, Is that a rocket in your pocket? And uh, I made a fortune out of censorship. Her famous lines, did she write her own famous
1: lines? She did. She wrote uh, her own plays and her own screenplays and those quotes. Are actually lines directly from a movie or a play. I used to be Snow White, but I drifted. Never let a man put anything over you outside of an umbrella. A man in the house is worth two on the street. Um, he's so crooked. He he should have used a corkscrew. As, he uses a corkscrew as a ruler. Uh, this, you know the. Uh, uh, it just it goes on and on. And when you watch a movie, every line. Is very funny, um, and she worked hard at that. She was very good at dialogue. They sometimes there was assistance in terms of the story structure, but uh, she wrote all the dialogue, and that was her gift. Uh, and no one could write material for Mae West. Surprising that during her the height of her career, she only made eight movies. Came back and made a couple later on, but. Uh, many people think, because, you know, if if you have a famous person like that, that they made tons of films. Uh, she didn't. She made, in in the space of seven years, uh, she made uh, eight films. And the reason was that she wrote them herself. The studio, she was under contract of the studio, but the contract was specific that she would write the material, she would write her own plays, she would approve of. Uh, uh, casting and, and direction and, and wardrobe and music, and not very many people in Hollywood had that that type of power. Um, so she wasn't able to crank out. Shirley Temple, for instance, could do uh, eleven movies in one year because they would take two weeks or three weeks to make, and they kept cranking them out. And she would just show up and tap dance and sing and do her thing, which was great. But with Mae West, you know, it took. A year almost to pull together a movie from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So she she didn't make that many films, and the and the senses got tougher and tougher with. And she finally, you know, was just bored with the whole thing. Uh, she had all before Hollywood. She had always worked with a live audience, and that's what she preferred. And, and even during her Hollywood uh, heyday, when a, when one of her films was released, she would travel uh, around the country to three or four or five big cities and do a small stage show uh, to, to introduce the film. Um, she loved working with a live audience. And well, she was she a real, Hollywood, I mean,
0: in addition to being an actress, she was a real entertainer, wasn't she?
1: She was. She sang, she danced. Uh, she, she was very much uh, an entertainer, and that kind of a well-rounded person you know that's the kind of training that you get from uh, vaudeville and burlesque and yes. working in, in stage shows uh, because you you end up appreciating or you have a really good ear for the audience. So the minute you walk out on the stage and begin something, you hear how they're receiving it, and if you're good at your craft, you're able to actually change. Uh, you find the, the, where this audience is and you, and you work with them, towards them, and you bring them in. She mm-hmm. has a great skill for doing that. Uh, and she loved working on stage. You know, she, when she left Hollywood, she went back to Broadway and she did Caffin was great, it, which she wrote. It was produced by Mike Top. And then it was a national tour. And then she spent the next, uh, 10 years touring the country and Great Britain in Diamond Lil. Uh, in uh, national tours and in America in s- several summer stock tours. Uh, and then she did a play called come on up Ring twice that uh, never made it to Broadway, but there was uh, was on the road for almost two years and also did in Summerstock. So she really liked living out of a trunk. Mm-hmm. I think at, at some point, you know, she got tired of that <coughs> uh, as anybody would, but that's what she was used to. That, that was, you know that was her Well you know the,
0: the more i read about her the more i liked her and the more i realized uh, that she was a pretty straight shooter wasn't she she didn't mince her words
1: no she she didn't suffer a fool uh she was not uh, a mean person uh and she usually exercised uh, you know some some bit of humor in in whatever she was was talking about or something bothered her but she knew what she wanted and you, if you if you didn't deliver then you know you you weren't there anymore mm-hmm. um but she knew it worked she knew her audience and no one knew that no one knew an audience better than she did um but she was a uh, negotiated great deals she wasn't afraid of men at all um she um, was very strong willed when you know when she came to hollywood in in nineteen thirty two she originally came by train, of course, and the train at that time stopped in uh, Pasadena, California, and then you would be motored from Pasadena to Los Angeles, um, and it was a sev- several-day trip. She came here originally to do one movie. That was all, um, and when she arrived uh on the train, of course, her reputation preceded her, and the reporters, as she stepped off the train, uh, asked her, um, in so many words, um, so, um, you know, this they were surprised, first of all, that she was five feet tall. And they said, well, how, how do you feel about this? A, a little lady in the big city. And she said, no, no, I'm a big lady in a little city.
0: <laughs>
1: and that was, that's, She set the tone.
0: (laughs) She did. Well, you said, um, you know, she looked so big on screen and in photos, and she had a bigger-than-life appearance with the big heels and hats. Uh, But you say physically uh, she wasn't big at all, and this was manufactured. Whose idea was it to manufacture her persona?
1: Oh, that was all her idea. Uh, Part of that, because she was so small, uh, when you're working on stage, you want to be the focus of the audience. So, you need to stand out, so she would have elaborate blonde wigs. She would wear uh victorian uh, uh, gowns that were all uh bugle beaded or or you know glittering that uh, covered her completely from her neck to the feet to the floor uh feathered boas, feather fans she used platform shoes. That were eight to nine inch platform shoes and, and the gown of course was uh, uh, tailored just to suit the, the shoes mm-hmm. she wore. So she had a lot of padding. Large, large hat with feathers that w- w- were a foot above her head. Um, and the costumes itself, the costume was specially constructed and padded that gave her bigger bosoms, wider hips, and a corseted waist. So it was all manufactured, uh, and that was part of the act. That was the presentation. She saw herself as this uh, incredible,
0: glamorous,
1: hourglass-figured sex symbol, and she believed it so strongly that the audience did.
0: Now, from what I read and from doing some of my own research, she wanted to make sex fun, didn't she? She didn't want people to be scared of sex.
1: Absolutely <laughs> she thought it was um uh, she thought it was very funny um and she thought that people were at the time um, you know morals were such that um people were if sex was you didn't even talk about it uh but she certainly did and um, she thought that it was something to to be enjoyed uh, nothing to be ashamed of, and she felt very strongly that women uh, had the same sex drive as men, and that they had every right to express that uh, and explore it in the same manner that men did, without being called a whore. Um, that was something very important to her.
0: Do you think that Mae felt misunderstood, and uh, in your opinion, was she misunderstood?
1: Um, that was there's a there's a quote that she has. Uh, one thing stands out, I've been misunderstood. I think <laughs> that... Um, I guess it depends on, on uh, you know, who is <laughs> writing an appreciation of her, whether or not she was misunderstood. I think that there are certain people who um, were on the attack because they were uncomfortable um, at the way she... Uh, presented herself and women, and she felt that age had nothing to do with this. That you know, th- this was a character that, that she created and played until she was eighty-eight, and the character was ageless. She knew who she was. She knew who her age, what her age was. It wasn't about deluding herself. It was about entertaining an audience, and. Men could work, uh, you know. Look at Cary Grant, who worked with her a, a couple of times. And this was a guy with gray hair who got better looking for most people as he got older, and was right. just as desirable as he was when he was twenty-five. And she thought, well, what, what, you know, what, what about me? What about any woman? <laughs> What's the difference? Yeah, she you know, still so of her time to think that. Yeah. So well, we talked uh, about just,
0: uh, we talked about her start. Um, what was her family life like? Did her parents encourage her when she was young? And what did they think of the image that she portrayed?
1: Well, uh, she was crazy about her mother. Um, Her father was um, a bare-fisted knuckle, uh, a champion knuckle fighter on the street. He had a a series of different jobs. I don't know that she felt... uh, well, I, I I don't believe she felt as close to her father at all as she did to her mother who she adored. She had a younger sister named Beverly and a younger brother named John. And her mother uh builded on her. And and um I, I wouldn't say she was a stage mother because that would that suggests that the child didn't have any desire to do that, but she certainly encouraged um May to to explore that you know, the the interests that she had. <clears throat> she was a very strong independent... Her mother was... Uh, Matilda was a very strong independent woman. And Tilly, they called her. And she managed the Hastings Hotel in Manhattan, which was the gangster hangout. Lucky Luciano <laughs> stayed there, and Capone and all of them. And she was very connected uh, to the mob. They all loved her. And that was um, how uh, Mae found her her attorney, Jim Timoney, who was a mob attorney, and her mother found him for her. And then uh, Oni Madden, who was known as the killer, a gangster who owned the Cotton Club, uh, Tilly knew him. And in fact, Oni Madden was one of the financial backers of Diamond Lil. Her mother invested in her plays on Broadway, and Oni Madden did. So her mother was very influential in her life. She didn't live long enough to see her movie stardom. uh may was in California uh, when her mother uh, died and uh, uh touring and um, she went back of course for that and it was very, very hard for her. But when she moved to, to Los Angeles in nineteen thirty two uh her sister followed her brother followed, and her father um, whatever her feelings might have been for her father she she brought him here, she bought him a house, and uh took care of him. He didn't live very long um, but uh, she did watch out for him. Beverly uh, outlived may West by eighteen months, and John died in sixty four I think you know, very young, and that was very hard for her. She was crazy about her brother
0: mm-hmm. now once in Hollywood. Did she have a lot of movie offers, Michael?
1: Well, she did. Um, initially uh, at, at Paramount, uh, there was a contract, so there really wasn't anything that could be introduced to her other than what was, you know, she was presenting for production. But when when she was done there, uh, movie offers uh, uh, in the nineteen fifties um a lot. Sunset Boulevard, um, uh Billy Wilder um, talked to her about that. She wouldn't hear of that. Uh Pal Joey, um the first traveling sales lady, um the uh, uh Fellini, Julia of the Spirits, uh which she actually was interested in doing but only if they would have filmed that in Hollywood. That was in the 1950s or early 70s, and, and they wouldn't do that. Uh, so she was offered things, but one of the stipulations was always that she had to write her own dialogue, and that was sometimes difficult. David Merritt mm-hmm. uh, really was interested in her to do Hello, Dolly, and when uh, the play was first written, it was sent to her uh and uh, asked her to consider playing the role of Dolly Levi. Um, she wasn't about to play the role of an old spinster,
2: <laughs>
1: um, so she said that it was something that did interest her, but she had to rewrite the character mm-hmm. um, to suit the May West personality, and they they wouldn't go for that. So why wasn't uh, she
0: interested in Sunset Boulevard?
1: Well, <laughs> you know it, the, the, the we, I think we all know that film pretty well. Uh, this was um, Gloria Swanson Norma Desmond was uh, really bordering on nuts Uh, you know she had lost essentially lost her her sense of reality and that didn't appeal to Mae West at all Um, and she looked like it was. Gloria Swanson was so good in the film, it's hard to imagine anyone else. Even if you're a big Mae West fan, it's very difficult to envision her in that role. Uh, but this was a, uh, I don't, I think the story was kind of uh, icky for her. Um, she, uh, but I think there were some nods, you know, Billy Wilder. Mae West, most of her life uh, had monkeys, spider monkeys as pets. And the beginning, I think it's at the very beginning of Sunset Boulevard, Gloria Swanson has a dead monkey laid out, you know, in her house. And uh, that, if that was not there before he really thought of Mae West, then, uh, and if she had read that, that would have really put her off. Um, So, I don't know when when that was, at what point that was introduced (laughs) into the script. It might have been there from the beginning. It's a great movie. She was, um, yeah, it
0: is. She was very ahead of her time, uh, Mae West was. We've talked about that. And you said that she hired a lot of black actors and musicians and gave them a chance.
1: She did. She, um, on Broadway, uh, she certainly introduced uh, black characters. And then in uh, Hollywood, her own maid, uh, who was a black woman who followed her from New York, who she adored, uh, she put her uh, started her in movies, and she had She left work. She left her employment with May West and had a movie career. They always played dom- they always played domestics. So that was the only mm-hmm. thing available. However, um, even in the May West movies, uh, she has black maids. But the difference is, they were not treated like servants. They were treated by May West like girlfriends and they would sit around and talk and gossip about men and laugh and joke and talk about clothes. That was very unusual and something very new. Yes. Because mm-hmm. they were put on an equal footing with the White Stars. Um, when she did Belle of the 90s, the music, uh, she wanted Duke Ellington, which she knew from the Cotton Club. And the studio said, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And she insisted, she said, the music, that's exactly the music I want. That's what we're going to do. And the studio said, well, no, but we will uh, buy the rights to the music and we'll have studio musicians, you know, play it. And she said, no, 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 Duke Ellington and his orchestra, and he's in the film, he's doing it. And they agreed. They finally agreed to that. That was very, very unusual. And then several years later, she did the same thing to Louis Armstrong when she insisted that he appear in uh, um, 1937, Every Day is a Holiday. So, you know, she was very uh, conscious of that. There were limitations, because you could only play certain kinds of roles, but but she wrote them in a way that was something very new, including if they played a butler or even a chauffeur. Mm-hmm. She would have uh, exchanges with them that were, Very, very different uh, from what people would Well, she took it to
0: a different level, really, is what she did. Yes, she did. Mm -hmm. You know, I was watching My Little Chickadee with W.C. Fields, and everybody knows that movie, too. And she's fascinating to watch, Michael, because it's not just the lines that she wrote. It's how she delivers her lines, uh, very polished, natural. Um, But you say she was scripted. She was very scripted.
1: She was very scripted, and she rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. She did not like ad-libbing. That was why she had uh clashes with Fields during the making of the movie, because he was great at ad-libbing, and she didn't appreciate that at all. Uh, she had she never worked with him, but um, during the early days, their paths crossed in vaudeville, uh and he was at Paramount Studios at the same time she was although they never worked together my little chickadee was uh, offered to each of them after their film contracts expired at Paramount the film was done at Universal she wrote the screenplay um, and he wrote uh, several scenes for himself um, it's an interesting film to watch because she she that's her least favorite film and it's, it's unfortunate because I think it's a very good film. It's very funny and, um, it has the most wonderful supporting cast of veteran character actors. And W.C. Fields was, you know, nobody could do what he did. So it's mm-hmm. a very fun film and it was very popular and it has become, if anybody knows one Mae West movie, it's My Little Chickadee. Yeah, that's and right. Much, much to her chagrin. But, um, they did work well together what what was, what ended up on the screen was was very, very good, but she was very rehearsed um and um, that came from you know obviously that would come from years of work on the stage because there you learn the whole script, you know there's no she screwing around. Out.
0: Right. She worked with some of the top people in the industry. I mean, too many to mention, but Bob Hope and Dean Martin and, of course, Cary Grant. How was May perceived, uh, Michael, by her peers? And did she get along with them?
1: Well, she did. She was not a temperamental person. Um, all of the people you mentioned uh, have have always had, uh, always had very kind words to say about her. Cary Grant did two movies with her. Or very early in in his career, she didn't exactly discover him because she he had done several films before appearing with her on the screen. However, his work with her uh, catapulted him into great leading man stardom. Um, he always spoke um, uh, respectfully of her. Um, Rock Hudson did a bit with her on the Oscar show in 1958. He thought she was great. Um, very entertaining, funny, flirty, um, and prepared. You know, more than anything, mm-hmm. she was uh, prepared. And, and nobody had to wait on her uh, in terms of, you know, she's not there on time. She didn't know her lines. Nothing like that.
0: Yeah, she was a real uh, she, pro, wasn't she?
1: She was. A very professional person. And again, you know, that comes from th- that very tough training on the stage.
0: Now younger people might remember younger people who are listening her later film Sextet and Myra Breckinridge how did her critics view those films
1: Well Myra Breckinridge the film itself was savaged by critics but they loved her they loved seeing her in the film she certainly looked like she had was the phoenix rising And she hadn't done a movie in 27 years, and it certainly brought her back into worldwide attention, and it gave her a whole new new life at the end of her life. But the film um, was not very well received. Sex Cat, which was done uh, seven, eight years later, uh, is not a good film. And uh, the critics, any critic or movie writer who was a fan of hers was kind in their uh, appreciation of the film, but that film would, probably should not have been made.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it was uh, based on a play. Her last uh, play uh, in 1960 was Sex, was Sextet, and she did that in Ohio, then in, then in Florida. And she tried for a long time to get that made as a film in the 1960s. And it came close several times at MGM. Billy Belasco had signed on to uh, to potentially produce it. George Cukor was interested, and I have the uh, her original um, uh, uh, a copy of her original script of the movie Sex Debt, which she had done in the '60s, and it's very different than the one that was finally done in 1977. Um, but I think that. Um it just, it was too late. It, it, there's moments in it that, that are typical May West. But um there were other projects on the table <clears throat> in her later life. And now in broadcast, and Those were um, passed over. Those were passed over, mm-hmm. unfortunately, for 610.
0: Uh, in broadcast Muse, you feature the actual scripts From her television appearance is a very interesting way to do that, uh, including Mae West meets Mr. Ed, uh, which is maybe something she she wouldn't do. But um, why did she turn to television? Was that just for her fans or why? Why did she gravitate to
1: television? she wasn't crazy about radio or television, and usually she did them in order to promote herself or a product or a project. Um, So she wrote her autobiography, goodness had nothing to do with it, in the late 1950s, I think 58, 59. And to promote it, she did a Dean Martin variety show. She did a Red Skelton show. Both of them were excellent. And she actually did a person-to-person for CBS that was supposed to air October 1959, they recorded it, but it was canceled at the last minute because the network uh, was afraid of her, and I've seen it. Um, it's It was recorded, so it, it can be seen, and I thought it was great, and there were moments that were a little uh, randy, perhaps, but it was very May West. You know, they one line that drove the drove the, the network executives crazy was they that program would, as you may recall, they interviewed a celebrity in their home. Yes. And they often did it remotely. And and mm-hmm. Morrow was in the studio smoking a cigarette, and there was a camera crew in the celebrity's home, and they would do an interview, and then the celebrity would walk around and show them. You know, show the people their home. And in May West K, she walked into her bedroom and there was a mirror over the bed. <laughs> and he said, you know, what is that for? And she, you know, why do you have a mirror over your bed? And she said, uh, oh, well, I like to see what I'm doing. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it's a funny line, but it was for some reason or other considered too much for CBS television in 1959.
0: Yes, and that would be mild uh, the these days, wouldn't it? That would be a
1: very mild oh, it would line. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it, it would be nothing. Yeah, it would be nothing.
0: In your book, Between the Covers, um, excerpts from the many, many published articles on May, there's an interesting comment regarding the private life of May West, indicating that May was a personality, not a person. And she was all about work. What did you discover in your research? about the real personality of Mae West. Who was this person, anyway?
1: Well, I think that the character she created of Mae West was an exaggeration of the real person. She was a a, a funny person by nature. She was very interested in in women's rights, black, rights, gay rights, as a person. Um, She was strong-willed, um, very determined and fearless, and the character that we see on the screen um, was very much an exaggeration. it was a performance um, When people came to interview her at her home, um, you know you'd be ushered into the into the living room and you would wait for her, and she would be putting Mae West together in her room. <laughs> And, mm-hmm. and she would come out and present as this the public may West um and she you know she kept that act up um that was her greatest creation as many artists that's the case, you know, regardless of the wonderful body of work that they might produce, if they're a painter or a writer or a singer or an actress or whatever um Their greatest achievement, their greatest artistic achievement, is often the public persona that they have created. Mm -hmm. That's what people remember the most. And in her case, that's exactly what happened. Um, And I think that she was a private person, really. You know, when she moved to Hollywood, she didn't go to Hollywood parties. She couldn't care less. She was working very hard. But she didn't go to, didn't go to parties. She didn't go out to fancy dinners. Once in a while she would go to the Olympic Auditorium and watch the fights because she had grown up, uh, appreciating boxing matches and her father was a fighter. But she was not a a social gadabout. That just wasn't her style. Uh, she was a homebody. Yeah. Yeah, that
0: reminds me of an interview I heard with Dolly Parton. Uh, when she was in New York many years ago, she said, I'm not out partying. People think I'm a partier, but I'm actually yeah. in my hotel room working. Yeah. And that sounds a lot exactly. like Mae West, quite a worker.
1: Yeah. Well, she worked all the time. And when you're a writer, um, it's not something that you turn on or off. It's not a nine-to-five. You know, she, she carried a patent pen with her all over the place, or someone did for her. And she would think of something and write it down immediately. Um so when it came to you, those things don't come to you, uh, you know, as I said, they don't come to you necessarily from nine to five. Mm-hmm. It could be two o'clock in the morning. And you, <laughs> you you jump up and go, oh god, I gotta re- gotta write this down. <laughs> um, a couple
0: more questions. What kind of legacy, uh, do you think she's left behind now?
1: Well, I think that, I think she represents, uh, something, uh, a shift. She's one of those characters who was uh, an active participant in a social social change that, that was happening at the time. There were writers who did that. There were people in the music business. And there were actors and actresses, public people. She was more than an actress because she wrote all of her own material. And I think that she represents this very strong woman who acted like a man acts and she still influences. I know that Madonna often credits her, uh, and calls her a, a great, uh, influence and she's a big fan. Mamie Van Doren, uh, um, is a big Mae West fan and says, you know, so much of what she did, I, it just inspired me. So, I think that it's still there. You know, I, I think that, uh, you just, now we have to consider, you know, the times and keeping it in the context of the times. But in those days, she was quite a brave person. Uh, she became, uh, in 1934, 35, the highest paid woman in the United States. Um, was remarkable. And this was a woman who really didn't have very much schooling. Uh, she started work, you know, when she was a teenager earning her own living and uh, she wasn't uh, uh, college educated. She didn't graduate from high school. Um, she was street smart for sure uh, which probably counts for more than the book learning but uh, this was uh, someone who I think that she achieved things that nobody could have envisioned or expected and she just challenged yourself all the time, and I think that's very inspirational. I think that even today, um, you know, we live in a world of instant gratification and entitlement,
2: and
1: this Right. this is someone who worked, worked from the very beginning. You know, the first job was not mm-hmm. president of the company. The first job was a menial job, and you work up to that. And, and I think process- sometimes
0: uh, you do better with being street savvy, uh, as you say,
1: Oh, oh, yeah, and I and I think that that if if you begin at the bottom and you're and you're working hard to get to the top, you're learning things that you would never learn otherwise, and you're exposing yourself to situations that will only prove beneficial later in life in terms of the way you handle them. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, we're running
0: a little uh, short on time, but I want to make mention that uh, Broadcast Muse and Between the Covers are both available on Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble and your favorite bookstore, as are Michael's other books. Uh, You can stay in touch with Michael on Facebook and learn more by visiting his website, michaelgregmichaud.com, which is listed here in his credits. And one more thing, Michael, when can we look forward to your next book?
1: The next book will be out in the fall, and it's called uh, Surfside Six from Miami Beach a program guide with behind the scenes stories from the last surviving star, Diane McBain
0: and you worked with Diane McBain on Famous Enough
1: I did, we're great friends, I've known her for many years
0: well Michael, the time has certainly uh, gone by very quickly it's almost an hour now Uh, If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can send a message to me right here on bbsradio.com. And, Michael, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Very informative.
1: Great. Nice to talk to you again, and I hope we'll do it again one day.
0: We will do it again. And I'll see all of you next time on One More Thing.